Hey Cole, have you ever wanted to bring an abusive friend back from the dead? <laughs> well, Jake Tilton did. Now I'm going to tell you all about it in Monkey's Paw. Welcome to Second to Die, the horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. So I'm going to talk about the movie Monkey's Paw that came out in 2013. There's been a lot of adaptations of this concept and this short story, and I'm going to talk about the history of that as well. So getting right into the meat of things... I chose to do Monkey's Paw because it's a movie that is set in and also filmed locally here in New Orleans. And I enjoy seeing films that are set in New Orleans just because it's fun to see my city. What I'm not going to do, even though sometimes it's hard, is that annoying thing where people point out every little thing that is incorrect about a movie's portrayal of their city because I realize that doesn't matter. And most people don't care about those things. But I will point out some of the more cringeworthy decisions that they made or some of the things that sometimes happen a lot when people make movies about New Orleans or set in New Orleans that can be a little bit uh, annoying. Okay. So real quick, I want to talk about this short story of Monkey's Paw because I think a lot of people are familiar with the general concept of the Monkey's Paw, this mummified, withered, monkey paw that grants three wishes. I think that's a pretty known concept or a known story. I feel like a lot of people had to read that in high school. Yeah. And I actually reread it again for this podcast. It's a very, very short, short story. It was originally published in 1902 in England in a collection that was titled The Lady of the Barge. And the first film adaptation of it actually was in 1915 as a silent film. The short story itself is pretty interesting. It is very creepy. The atmosphere of it is very spooky. And to sum it up, if you aren't familiar with it, essentially it's a man and his wife and their son around the fire in their house. This stranger comes and basically they're telling stories and playing chess for some reason that's relevant. And ultimately the stranger gives them this monkey's paw, tells them that it is under this curse that for three people it will grant three wishes but that it will twist the wishes to essentially teach people a lesson to not mess with fate and that's the point and the first wish of the guy is that he wishes that his mortgage is paid off which is 200 pounds which i guess according to wikipedia is the modern equivalent of twenty-four thousand dollars And he wishes for that, and the next day his son is killed in the factory that he works in, and when his employer comes to tell him, they give him a goodwill payment of exactly 200 pounds to cover the mortgage. So then, the second wish is he wishes for his son to come back from the dead, and when that happens, the son is buried two miles away. They're in the house, and then a small amount of time passes enough for a shambling corpse to make its way to the house. And they start hearing this knocking on the door and realize it's the resurrected corpse body of their son pounding on the door. 
and the guy and his wife are freaking out and the wife says that's not my son and ultimately the guy grabs the paw makes his third wish which the story does not actually say what it is but it's very clear to the reader that it is to just make the guy go away and he makes a third wish the knocking stops they open the door and there's nothing outside Bum, bum, bum. Exactly. Bum, bum, bum. So anyways, moving right along, they have done a ton of adaptations and film versions of this tale. I think it's just something that people find interesting. There is a very spooky aspect to it. And the whole idea of be careful what you wish for, I think, just appeals to people. And there's a lot you can do with it. Uh, One of the noteworthy adaptations was Alfred Hitchcock had the Alfred Hitchcock Hour that used to air from 1955 to 1965. And in 1965, he did a version of that. That hour was uh, hosted, produced, and completely created by Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, that being said, in 2013, they did another adaptation. And this one was directed by Brett Simmons... He's done a couple other more smaller movies, not any blockbusters or anything. And it stars C.J. Thompson as the main character, Jake Tilton, and Stephen Lang as Anthony Cobb. Stephen Lang, I actually love. He played Increase Mathers in the TV show Salem, which is very good. If you like anything spooky, Salem is fantastic. Until like the last season. Until the last season, which is bad. But the first season particularly is great. Although I think the Increase Mathers character doesn't come into it until the second season. But regardless. And then it also has this girl, Michelle Pierce, in it. And the reason that I mention her is because uh, CJ Thompson... I'm sorry, it's CJ Thomason. CJ Thomason and Michelle Pierce both have the Transformers 1 movie listed on their IMDb. And Michelle Pierce actually has it listed as her most known for role. And in the Transformers movie, she is listed as playing socialite. And and in the Transformers movie, CJ Thomason is listed as playing Sailor. So it's kind of like people just took the extras from Transformers and were like, let's make this monkey's paw movie. And they just did it. Oh, boy. Yeah. But C.J. Thompson is actually okay in this movie. Michelle Pierce is not okay in this movie. Her acting is awful. And it could be somewhat the writing, but I don't actually think so. Although I will mention that her character has such little depth that the name of the character is Olivia, and they don't even bother giving her a last name. Okay, so getting to the 2013 adaptation, it is a variation on the original story with a slight twist And I think it actually makes it kind of interesting. And if you're going to draw out a short story into a movie, you have to add something that's going to spice it up a little bit. And so with this, they do. But I will say, I was very hesitant when I first started watching this movie. And I almost decided to just do something different. Because when I first started it, the first scene is everybody at work in this factory. And it's in New Orleans, so that's fine. But... The main character, Jake, his best friend in the movie works with him, and he is a... I don't even know how to put this. He is doing this incredibly thick Cajun accent, 
And his name is Catfish. <sighs> yes. So while I'm not normally nitpicky about, like, New orleans stuff being portrayed in films, when I first saw this, and when I say thick Cajun accent, I mean, I don't mean, like, Gambit from the X-Men thick. I mean, like, you cannot understand him thick. And there are definitely some Cajun people who speak like that. But just so everyone is clear, not really in New Orleans. That's really more of a country thing, like three hours to the west of New Orleans. And I'm just not sure if if that was okay or not. But I decided to stick through it. And his accent, weirdly enough, gets better throughout the movie. Like, they hammed it up or something in the first scene to where it's almost incomprehensible. But when I first saw this, of course, Creole skin-toned guy with this hyper-Cajun accent named Catfish, I was like, no, not, I'm sorry. Next. (laughs) But I stuck with it and it was fine. So anyways, so the main character, Jake, and the other guy, Anthony Cobb, who they call Tony Cobb, and then most of the time they just call Cobb, all work in this factory together. The factory supervisor guy ends up getting fired and then they see him out at a bar that night and they talk to him and for some reason the manager is like a super jerk and he basically gives Jake the monkey's paw and says this is a trinket it's magical it it grants wishes and he does it as this kind of tongue-in-cheek joke thing yeah and he's like make a wish and so Jake grabs the monkey's paw and basically wishes for what he says is, I wish for that GT outside or something. Is that a car? This is how gay I am. I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I watched the scene again, the line, just to be like, what is he talking about? Because I thought I misheard it. And then I still didn't know. But then I realized it was a car outside (laughs) because... That night, they closed down the bar, basically, and when he goes out to the parking lot, there's a car with the key still in it, and they just take it. Oh, okay, because that's how you acquire vehicles. Yes, and even at that point, he's still not convinced it was the wish. He's just kind of like, okay, I'll take this car. So they do. Anyway, they get into a car accident. And, oh, (laughs) side note, they get into a car accident... Because they're driving down the road, and like is so common here in New Orleans, there is an alligator in the middle of the road, and they have to swerve to avoid it. Okay. And look, I said I wasn't going to get too nitpicky about the whole New Orleans thing, but I will, like, I didn't even mention when they ordered a Bita in the bar, and it actually ended up being two glasses of whiskey when a Bita is a beer. I didn't say anything about that. But driving down the road and having an alligator just in the middle of the road, I'm sorry. That that really doesn't happen. Anyways. Yeah. Potentially a peacock, though. Shout out to the Holly Grove peacock. Yeah. Yeah, it could be a peacock or chicken. There are a lot of neighborhood chickens. Yeah. But so anyways, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit at that. Because it's very clear that they're trying to do the thing where, you know, the deer jumps out and people have to swerve and they get into a car wreck. But they're like, yuck, yuck, New Orleans, let's put a gator in the road. It's not Florida. No, it's not. I was literally taught how to run away from alligators in, like, kindergarten PE class. 
Yeah, and I mean, we have alligators in the swamps, but New Orleans is not really the swamp. No, I mean, it's a city. A small city, but it's a city. Yeah. So anyway, they get into a car accident, and Cobb was not wearing his seatbelt, so he goes flying through the window and dies. So Jake feels super bad about this, takes out the monkey's paw, and basically makes a wish that Cobb weren't dead. So after that, he tries to flag down a vehicle that's coming down the road. And then for some weird reason, it's a weird scene. He flags on the vehicle. The vehicle is clearly sees him and it's going to start to stop. And Jake runs away. So that happens. And it ends up being this very pretty blonde girl. She calls 911. And as she's calling 911, Cobb stands up from behind her. She gets spooked, turns around. And he says, am I still dead? And I'll point out at this point that Stephen Lang, who plays Cobb, is a very good actor. And so the way he delivers the lines is actually legitimately creepy. And I enjoyed his performance in this movie. There's only a couple people that were really not fun to watch. I'll mention them. So anyways, so instead of taking to the hospital like a normal person would do, this girl is like, I'm just going to take this guy back to my house. Probably also worth mentioning for people that aren't familiar with Stephen Lang. He's very handsome for an older guy. Oh, okay. That makes sense then, right? Yes. Because handsome people you just take back to your house. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So she's fixing him up a little bit. And then all of a sudden she decides this guy has like a gash in his forehead from this car crash. And then she decides that she has always been into, as she puts it, the older fellas. And straddles him and starts to, I guess, like, try to make something happen. But he's like a zombie, so he's having none of it. So he pushes her off of him and stands up. And she gets real affronted. And he goes into the bathroom, looks himself in the mirror, he comes out. That's not important. But he's leaving and he has her hoodie in his hand. And she goes, hey, that's my hoodie. And he stops, walks up to her. She tries to take the hoodie, so he wraps it around her neck and strangles her to death. Oh, like you do. Yes. I can a little bit sympathize because I wear a hoodie pretty much 80% of my life that I'm not at work. Because I love hoodies. And if somebody tried to walk out with my hoodie, I'd be really mad. But I would never kill somebody over a hoodie. Unless it were, like, really soft. God. Okay, so anyways, now is the point in the movie where I mentioned that Jake's character has this ex-girlfriend named Olivia, who is played by Michelle Pierce, uh, who is a terrible actress. I'm sorry, Michelle Pierce. Please don't sue us. (laughs) But her character is not likable. She's very robotic when she delivers the lines. You feel almost nothing for her. And also, the whole point of their relationship in the story is that... They were old, I don't know, high school sweethearts or something. And something didn't work out between them, which is never explained. And she ended up marrying Jake's boss. Not the supervisor who got fired, but his boss named Kevin. So a lot of this movie is basically Jake wanting his old girlfriend back. And Jake and Kevin don't get along. It's really dumb. I am not going into this. But it's okay because eventually Kevin is killed. So... 
By whom or by what? At least tell me how he dies. <laughs> I'll tell I'll tell you how he how he gets killed. Basically, so when Cobb comes back, mm-hmm. he it's explained later that the reason he is like this is because he is brought back with no soul. But Cobb comes back and he is super demented and twisted and evil. And he wants Jake's third wish because Cobb has a son with this woman named Abby. Abby does not let him see his son. So he wants Jake's third wish to be to let Cobb have his son back. So anyways, it's kind of dumb because he could just ask for the monkey paw instead after Jake uses his third wish. That's beside the point. But essentially, Jake says... I can't give you my third wish. And Cobb says, why? Because you want to waste it on Olivia. And then Cobb says, you can get Olivia without a wish. Don't worry. So Cobb goes and kills Kevin, thinking that if Olivia is not married, that Olivia will get back with Jake. The Kevin death scene, by the way, you would probably enjoy because I know you like watching those hydraulic press videos. (gasps) So Cobb puts his head into a hydraulic press and pushes the button. Oh my god. Yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I thought of you when I watched that scene because I know that you watch those videos on uh, Instagram and stuff. Oh, my favorite is the Barbies. <laughs> so, anyways. So then then the movie gets a little bit derailed in terms of plot and logic, as so many horror movies do. Because then, for some reason, Cobb decides that he needs to kill all the members of Jake's family to make Jake give him this wish. And I think the logic is that if Jake has nobody to care about, he won't use his wishes on himself. Like Jake's mother is dying of cancer and Cobb thinks that Jake might use his wish to cure her. So Cobb goes to the hospital and smothers his mother in her hospital bed. Jeez. Yeah. That's one way to go about it. Yeah, and then the hospital tells Jake that the mom died of a heart issue, even though I feel like, no, granted, I'm not a pathologist, but I feel like if somebody is asphyxiated, then their cause of death is going to be asphyxiation, right? Like, that's a thing. Theoretically, yeah. Anyway. I don't know. I don't know anything about that sort of stuff. Anyway, moving on. Then also Cobb goes and tries to kill Jake's brother and his brother's wife as well. I have actual no idea why he decides this is necessary because Jake doesn't even get along with them in the movie. And so the sort of illogical plot movement in this movie is the only reason that I didn't love it, even though the atmosphere of it is actually okay. And the story is fine because it's not a story that they created. It's a story that they just riffed on. And To be truthful, Stephen Lang probably saves it because his whole character of this resurrected soulless guy is done so well. I mean, he seems so cold and so creepy and genuinely terrifying. It's just strange decisions that they use to have him kill people. And sometimes it felt like they were having him kill people just for the sake of killing people, which is okay in a slasher film, for instance, when the killing is meaningless. But in a movie like this, where there is a plot and things should make a little bit of sense, I don't love it. Yeah. there. I will say, there are some very cool settings in this film. Visually, it's pretty cool. And they do use 
uh, Lafayette Cemetery a few times. That's mm-hmm. where, for some reason, Cobb likes to meet Jake in the cemetery. And that cemetery in particular is used in a lot of films. And it's, for good reason, it's highly effective. It looks very cool. Yeah. Um, Because obviously in New Orleans, we have those above ground cemeteries. Because you can't bury people in the ground because we're below sea level and they would float away. They pop up like daisies. Yeah. So our cemeteries are above ground mausoleums for the most part and are actually very cool looking. And so they make good filming. And so they do utilize that. And it gives their meetings, the scenes where they're meeting, a very good creepy layer that might not exist otherwise. Yeah. And it's actually Lafayette Cemetery, not like a reproduction looking at your originals. <laughs> no, it's actually Lafayette Cemetery. I am 100% certain of that. Because when he walks in the gates, it's definitely the gates. And yeah. I used to work right across the street from that cemetery. Yeah. So it's definitely the cemetery... The, they're not running through it. They don't destroy anything or anything like that. It, it's just a meeting place. So it's pretty cool. So Cobb decides to track down and kill Jake's brother and his sister-in-law. He follows him to this cabin. While that's happening, Jake and Catfish had gone to visit the supervisor who had given him the monkey's paw because he kind of realizes that something crazy is going on and... He also decides to go see a fortune teller in Jackson Square to investigate this further. It is actually Jackson Square, and there are actually fortune tellers there, so it's pretty believable. And the fortune teller basically does his tarot and tells him that he is responsible for the man with no soul. So, spooky. But, so they go to see the guy who gave him the monkey's paw after realizing that maybe there's something real about this monkey's paw. One of my favorite things in this movie that I did not even realize until I went and read the original Monkey's Paw story, is the nod to the original story in this is that the supervisor, his story with the Monkey's Paw is the original story. Except that they make him the brother of the person dying. Let me elaborate. He basically, the supervisor, tells them that his dad wished to pay off his mortgage And their son got deployed to the military, was killed, and his life insurance was the exact cost of their mortgage. Oh, okay. And then his dad and mother were so grief-stricken that they wished the son back to life. But there was something wrong with the son, and so ultimately they had to use the last wish to correct it. So I thought that was kind of cool that they did that nod to the original story by putting in the character who gave the monkey's paw to Jake... As somebody whose story directly is the original version. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So anyway, so after they talk to him and he, of course, is like, yeah, that monkey's paw is cursed. You shouldn't have used it. But he did. So whatever. They leave. Weirdly enough, Cobb kills that guy after that scene, which makes almost no sense because there's no there's no reason to kill him. Because the whole point is he was killing people because he wanted that third wish and he wanted to make Jake give him the third wish. Yeah. But then he just kind of starts like killing everybody who was a side character in the movie. I think just to give the movie more death scenes, to be honest with you. Well, the the supervisor also told Jake, you know, that the monkey's paw was cursed, which would make Jake hesitant to use his third wish. Yeah, I suppose that's true. So anyway, Cobb follows Jake's brother to this cabin. They realize they're being followed 
and they end up calling Jake and in kind of a very suspenseful, gruesome way, Jake is on the phone with his sister-in-law when Cobb kills Jake's brother with a machete to the head, like split in two. Oh boy. And then it shows Jake on the phone and he basically hears Cobb murdering the sister-in-law, but it's not shown. And it's actually quite effective. Interesting. Because it seems anxiety-inducing. So then Jake goes to the cabin and Abby and Abby's son is there now. So that's Cobb's ex and Cobb's son. The one that Cobb wants Jake to use his wish on. So wait, Jake goes to the cabin with Abby and Abby's son? Abby is already there for some weird reason, even though she's never seen going there. Nor would she have any idea where that cabin is because it's Jake's brother's cabin. Okay. Yeah. What if the real gag is that Jake's brother was cheating on his wife with Abby <laughs> and the son is not actually Cobb's son, it's Jake's brother's son? I mean, that would be a more interesting plot, to be honest. Because I feel like what happened is they were like, well, this movie's already almost an hour and a half. We gotta wrap things up. So Abby's just at this cabin now. Awesome. Okay. So Abby and her son are at this cabin. Jake shows up. Cobb is there. For some reason, not explained in the movie, Cobb has started to sort of deteriorate and decay. The only thing I could think of in my head is maybe it's that his body was still decaying as if it had died, even though it hadn't died. But that is me just trying to give credence to this movie because they do not tell us that or anything along those lines. But Cobb is like, Barely able to speak, bleeding from one of his eyes and his mouth, and from his mouth. So it's like, it's weird. But anyways, he can barely talk, but he grab. oh, Olivia is also there. I'm sorry. Cobb had kidnapped Olivia and brought her there as well. So Cobb is basically taking Olivia and threatening to kill her unless Jake uses his wish. And even though he can barely speak, he basically just keeps moaning like, my son, my son. So then Jake takes the monkey's paw and says, I wish that my friend Cobb had his soul back. (laughs) God, this is so bad. Okay, what happens? Yeah. So you would think that there would be this big moment where he gets his soul and realizes everything he's done wrong, but that does not happen necessarily. So then Cobb gets mad because he, he used the wish like that and he stabs Olivia, but only in the shoulder. It's not a fatal blow. Because he has his soul, so he's not going to kill her. Yeah. So then Cobb and Jake get into fisticuffs and Cobb like pummels the crap out of Jake, but then does kind of get his soul back, realizes like all this bad stuff that's been going on. And then him and Abby are kind of in this like weird scuffle. But then ultimately what happens is Cobb shoots himself in the head. And the bullet hole from the bullet exiting his head into the wall is mysteriously shaped like a monkey skull. I beg your fucking pardon. (laughs) Yeah, like a rough outline of one. But still, it's pretty dumb. Anyway, so then... The final scene of the movie, basically, Jake had been, like, really beaten to death. And his face was all kind of, like, mashed in and bloody. So he comes to in the ER, and he's on a stretcher, and they're rushing him through in the hospital. And he just keeps saying, where's the paw? Where's the paw? Where's the paw? 
And so you know they're going to do some sort of dumb cliffhanger ending, and I was just waiting for it. And then it cuts to Abby and her son, and she had sold her house, and they're moving. And she's in her car, and the final, final scene of the movie is her basically saying to her son, are you ready? And him saying, yeah, with his headphones on. And then you look down, and in his hand, the son, who's like five, is holding the monkey's paw. And that's the end of the movie. Lord... So we were starting off pretty strong, to be honest, because I do like the story of the monkey's paw. And they had some good moments in the movie. Some of the deaths were cool. Stephen Lang's performance is great. But this movie, I don't remember exactly what it had in Rotten Tomatoes. But I feel like even not knowing, it was too high. Because this movie's ending was so dumb. And part of the problem is they tried to wrap up so many things in the most illogical sense like they just stopped caring about whether the story made sense and just started thinking we have to end this movie that's how it came off to me that's so bad it's not great I, uh, okay <laughs> so yeah the moral of the story is do not bring your friends back from the dead that never works out well if only i had friends yeah So anyway, that's Monkey's Paw. One of these days I'm going to do a movie that's actually pretty good. But the thing is, is I don't know that these movies are bad when I watch them. You did did Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery is good. Yeah, that's true. Pet Cemetery was really good. Pet Cemetery was good, had points that were funny. This has points that were kind of funny, but ultimately I just feel like it wasn't done as well as it could have been. But... I've seen worse things in my life. I'll say that. But if I were to tell people if they should see Monkey's Paw, I would probably just tell them to read the short story. Book is always better. Yeah. Except The Devil Wears Prana. (laughs) Speaking of books, why don't you tell me about My Best Friend's Exorcism? All right. So, My Best Friend's Exorcism. Really, before I get into this, I just want to point out, as you know, but so everyone knows, and so we're completely clear... I was born in 90. I did not experience the 80s. I never really had an interest in the 80s. And this book basically has everything to do with the 80s. Okay. So it was a very interesting experience to read it, knowing that references are being made the entire time that I just don't get. Like, what the fuck is a swatch? A swatch? It's... These old cheap watches. Let's move on. (laughs) But there's like a whole thing about swatches. And I was like, what? Uh, And like they smell. Were they scented? I don't think they were scented. But I think if I'm remembering correctly, I think swatches had maybe fabric bands. So maybe they absorbed scent. I don't don't remember them being scented, to be honest. I don't know. There was just a whole thing about swatches. And I was like, I don't... And it's early on in the, it was early on enough in the book that I was just like, well, this is going to be one of those experiences. Anyway, back on topic. My Best Friend's Exorcism was written by Grady Hendrix, who is my favorite horror author. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he is fantastic and wonderful, and I will eventually talk about everything he's ever written. It was originally published in 2016. Let me read you the blurb. High school sophomores Abby and Gretchen have been best friends since fourth grade. But after an evening of skinny dipping goes disastrously wrong, Gretchen begins to act different. 
She's moody. She's irritable. And bizarre incidents keep happening whenever she's nearby. Abby's investigation leads her to some startling discoveries. And by the time their story reaches its terrifying conclusion, the fate of Abby and Gretchen will be determined by a single question. Is their friendship powerful enough to beat the devil? <laughs> like an unholy hybrid of Beaches and The Exorcist, my best friend's exorcism blends teen angst, adolescent drama, unspeakable horrors, and a mix of 80s pop songs into a pulse-pounding supernatural thriller. I mean, that sounds amazing. He so he clearly wrote this to be kind of campy. Yes. Okay. A hundred, a thousand percent. Yeah, because it sounds campy, but in like the best of ways. The problem is all the camp went over my head because it's all eighties camp. Oh. Hmm. So sadly, I'm not going to talk a lot about it because I didn't get a lot of it. That's okay. I mean, I feel like you not getting the specific references. I feel like the general aesthetic of the 80s is at least well known yes like i can see the cover that i'm sure you're going to talk about in a second (laughs) so we can talk about that i love the cover so i have the paperback version the reason why that's important is the hardback version is boring as hell oh the cover of it yes um in comparison at least the paperback version is made to look like a vhs tape rest in peace blockbuster Oh, I can see that. Yeah. Um, oh, and it even says VHS it on says it. It says VHS. There are stickers. There's a be kind, please rewind sticker. On the back, there's a staff pick sticker. Okay. So it's clearly meant to look like a rental VHS tape. You know, the front is super lurid. It's actually all scenes from the book. Okay. On um, the like weird cacophony of imagery that you're yeah. struck with. My favorite part is the back is, like, live-action photos of people. Oh, yeah. But also scenes from the book. Huh. And actually, it's the scene I'm going to start off talking about. So it's a wonderful transition, because sometimes I'm lazy. And I like when my transitions are built in. So our first couple of chapters are just some background to Abby and Gretchen's friendship. I'm not going to go into them, because to be completely honest, it is basically two chapters of... 80s references. Okay. Which again, not to point out our age difference, if you read it, having been born in the early 80s, I think you would love it so, so much. Because you at the very least have memories of this time period. And I wasn't born. Yeah. I mean, I remember some things. I would say I probably remember the early 90s more than I remember the 80s. But I think that there is a little bit of bleed over. I mean, I was nine when the 80s ended. But I guess I remember a little bit of it. But the story really starts on a warm summer night. And Abby and Gretchen are hanging out with two other friends of theirs named Glee and Margaret. Which What what the fuck kind of name is Glee? Anyway, so they are all hanging out at Margaret's family's house because Margaret is old money. And they decide to drop acid. Okay. Like you do. Yeah, for sure. And they're not feeling like anything's happening. They're all just kind of hanging out. Gretchen is talking about some boy that she met over summer camp named Andy. He plays in later. And then all of a sudden, Gretchen decides that she wants to go skinny dipping. 
So she runs to the edge of the dock behind Margaret's family's property, taking off her clothes as she goes, and jumps off. The other girls go and they try and find her, and they can't. She's nowhere to be seen. So they're going through the woods, and they're looking, and Abby finds a blockhouse, which is what it's called, on Margaret's property. It's basically just like an old-fashioned, like, shed sort of outbuilding. Okay. And as she's walking by, she hears a voice whispering her name. So she runs away. <laughs> like you do. It wasn't it wasn't Gretchen's voice. It was like a weird, like Yeah, no, I would run away. Spooky voice being like, Abby. I don't care if it's a voice you do know. If I'm like out in the woods and I hear your voice whispering to me instead of just talking, I'd probably run away too. <laughs> Good to know in case I ever want to scare you in the future. <laughs> so the next morning, they're looking one last time before they have to admit that Gretchen is gone. And Abby walks back past the blockhouse and she finds Gretchen inside. Mm-hmm. And Gretchen is still naked. She seems very confused as to what happened. And Abby takes a glance inside of the blockhouse and there's a circular slab in the middle. And all over the walls and all over the slab are symbols drawn in red paint. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, girl. That sounds like my first apartment. Um, God. But that's essentially where it starts, and then things go downhill very, very quickly. Gretchen stops bathing. Ooh. Yes, just like period. That might be the scariest part of this but I haven't heard the rest, so... Oh, oh, you haven't heard about Spiro Week, but it's only about two bullet points down in oh, my notes. Oh, God. So we'll get there soon. Gretchen stops bathing. She never changes out of her clothes, so she wears the exact same thing every single day. Um, So at one point, she tells Abby that she's no longer a virgin because she was attacked the night that she disappeared. And she says every time that her skin is exposed... She feels hands grabbing at her. And she also says that she constantly is feeling taps on the back of her neck. And the taps are always in three, which is a sign of possession. Right. Um, I learned this from Kimberly's podcast. She does an entire episode about, like, three taps. I only learned it, I'm assuming it's the same story, honestly, from the movie The Conjuring. It's like a mock- a mockery of the Trinity or something. Yeah. I learned that because Kimberly did an episode on her podcast. You know, my sister has a podcast with her best friend from work. It's called The Dark Rose Pod. You should totally check it out. It's great. But anyway, all of these signs of possession culminate to Spirit Week at their school. And I don't remember what the theme of Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday were. But Thursday was Slave Day. What? So I'm going to read. (laughs) Is that a... (laughs) I didn't ever have Spirit Week in high school, I don't think. But I did go to a summer camp and we had Spirit Week. But I do not remember a Slave Day. I don't feel like that's okay. I went to high school in the 2000s and we did not have Slave Day. But let me read that portion to you. Okay. And because I don't know what copyright laws are with reading direct passages from books on a podcast in order to properly cite my work, 
I am reading from the 2017 paperback edition on page 165. Please don't sue me. Thursday was Slave Day. Five years later, Slave Day was gone as if it had never existed, but in 1988, no one dreamed that it could possibly be offensive. It was tradition. A quad of students was clustered around the front office window where the slave market was posted. Oh my god. It was a giant piece of white butcher's paper, and the idea was that students could buy a slave for a set price. And if the slave didn't beat that bid by one dollar, then they were owned by their master, who would make them do whatever she wanted during the lunchtime slave parade. Skipping a little bit of portion to the bottom of that paragraph where it says, all the money raised went to the alumni fund. So that made it okay. Yeah, there's nothing okay about any of that. In Grady Hendrick's defense, all of this is campy and overblown. It is very much done in a this isn't actually okay sort of way. So anyone who listens to this without having read Grady Hendrix, don't go after him saying he's racist. He's fully aware of how not okay it is and is poking fun at how ignorant previous generations were about such things. I mean, maybe that is kind of maybe something like that did exist in the 80s. Because obviously I was not in high school in the 80s, so I don't know. I mean, you were seven. Yeah, so, okay, that's, I mean, it's not done in a way that's so offensive that you can't appreciate what he's trying to do. I guess I'll put it that way. Yeah. Anyway, back to the story. So, a little bit of background to this scene, very brief. Um, It's mentioned several times in the book that Abby has terrible skin. And so she wears a lot of makeup to cover it up. And her best friend Gretchen is the only person who sees her without a full face on. So on Slave Day, Abby walks up and sees that Gretchen has bought Abby. Abby comes from a really poor family, so she can't afford to top the bid. So Gretchen comes and collects her. That's not like a part of the thing. It's just Abby is still staring at the paper and Gretchen walks up and takes her to the bathroom And says, wipe off your makeup. You're the slave. You have to do what I say. Wipe off all of your makeup. And Abby freaks the fuck out. They get in a huge argument. And Abby storms off. That night, Gretchen calls. And she sounds like she's in a whole lot of trouble. And she's asking for Abby's help. And Abby hangs up on her. The next day, Gretchen is a whole new woman. She's bathed. She's dressed super sexy. Her hair is done. Like, she looks great. And she's being an absolute bitch. I mean, that happens, you know. When Satan fully possesses you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what it is. So here is where I get to talk about what happens to Glee and what happens to Margaret. Because they're both delightful. So everyone seems super drawn to Gretchen and Gretchen becomes this like Regina George-esque queen bee. And she starts basically granting people their desires. It's not super blatant. Like no one is like, oh, Gretchen, do this for me. It's just she helps them. But it doesn't go exactly as planned because Gretchen is using it to torture people. 
So with Glee, because it wouldn't be an episode of this podcast if we didn't talk about inappropriate relationships between adults and children. (laughs) Are you kidding? (laughs) No. Oh, man. It's not really that. Like, it it doesn't... It's not actually bad. I just wanted to make that joke. Sure. Because uh, this is now the third episode. Uh, Glee has a crush on Father Morgan. They go to a Catholic school. Okay. Um, This is in Charleston, South Carolina. She has a crush on Father Morgan. This is actually a pretty short part. Gretchen basically pulls some strings so that Glee gets to work with Father Morgan closer and closer. And she spends less and less time with her friends. But the interesting part is there is a scene where Abby is leaving school and papers are raining down. And they are photocopied papers of love letters to Glee signed by Father Morgan. And Glee is standing at the top of the clock tower in the school, topless, don't know why that's important, throwing these photocopies out because Father Morgan has rejected her. And so she wants everyone to see the evidence of his passion. Okay. And then she tries to jump. Tries to jump? Someone stops her. Okay. And then her parents kind of whisk her away. I don't know how much you know about Charleston. I only know because they have a really good library system that I considered working for at one point. So I did a lot of research about it. Charleston has a lot of like old Southern money. Mm-hmm. in it and this is a private school and abby is a scholarship student so all of her friends are super wealthy and so glee's parents just kind of squirrel her away and spirit her off to like a rehab center because they have the money for that that's the end of glee's thing it's far less interesting than margaret okay so margaret comes from like serious old money There's a lot of references to how rich her family is. And Margaret is described as being curvy, but like super, super gorgeous. But Margaret's mother puts a lot of pressure on her to be skinny. Makes a lot of comments about her eating and things like that. And so Gretchen gives Margaret these weight loss shakes that she found. And so it's actually a really interesting, and for people with eating disorders, potentially very triggering, chapter... Because it's just a normal chapter of plot, but you see Margaret's food logs that she makes throughout the day of how little she's eating, and it gets less and less and less, and by the end of it, she's only drinking these shakes. And the the shakes sound really gross. They're described as this, like, milky white sort of, like, thick consistency shake. But eventually she stops coming to school. And later on, during her investigations, when Abby is trying to figure out what's going on, she tracks down Margaret at not their normal house, but they own like a like old traditional Charleston home, which I actually love Charleston homes because they have like colonnades on the side. It's a whole thing. I love them. That's irrelevant. Margaret is emaciatedly thin, like completely skeletal. And so Abby is trying to talk to her and Abby brought Margaret's favorite ice cream to try and get her to eat. And the smell makes Margaret start to gag and heave. And while gagging and heaving, something enormous and white starts coming out of her mouth. Your face is great right now. 
And Margaret's dog runs into the room and grabs it. And so Margaret is like choking on this enormous white thing being dragged out as the dog pulls the entire thing out. And it is a monster tapeworm. Oh, God. That's right, folks. The white shakes were actually tapeworm eggs. That's gross. Fun fact, the tapeworm diet started out as a real thing in Victorian times. (laughs) The idea was that you took a pill that had a tapeworm egg in it. And once you reached your goal weight, uh, a method was used to remove the tapeworm. Interestingly enough, one of the methods was to hold your mouth open over food. And Victorians thought that that would make the tapeworm stick its head out. And then they would pull out the tapeworm. There's not any evidence to show whether the pills actually had tapeworm eggs in them. But the most interesting thing is people bought them whether they were placebos or not. Yeah, that's pretty vile. And in my research to see if this is a real thing or was a real thing, apparently there are clinics in Mexico that will still give you the tapeworm treatment. Yeah, that's, um, that's real gross. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most interesting scenes in the whole book. So during all of this, Abby is investigating what's going on with Gretchen. One of my favorite scenes during the investigation is she's sitting at, it's at school. So she's, picture her, she's sitting in a desk in front of Gretchen's desk, and she's turned around talking to Gretchen. And Gretchen is maintaining eye contact, but she's writing something in her day book. And Abby glances down and it is upside down so that Abby can read it. So upside down for Gretchen, a cry for help. All while Gretchen, air quotes here, is holding a completely different conversation with her. Mm, That's kind of cool. I thought that was really well done. Abby actually steals Gretchen's date book. And here's where things get most interesting. So remember Andy, the boy that Gretchen met over summer camp? Yes. The entire school year, Gretchen is talking about talking to Andy every single night. So Andy's phone number is written in the very front of the book. And so Abby decides that she's going to call Andy because she wants to figure out what's going on with Gretchen. But when she calls, the old Gretchen answers. And she sounds super weak and she sounds like she's in trouble. And the sound keeps fading out. And it sounds like someone is holding her hostage. Later on in her investigations, Abby decides that she's curious about something. And she goes to the library, as you should do if you're curious about something. And the librarian helps Abby look up Andy's phone number. And Andy's actual phone number is one digit off from what is written in the notebook. Like two of the digits are flipped. So Abby calls Andy's actual phone number. And Andy says that he hasn't talked to Gretchen since they were in summer camp together. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) So this prompts Abby to look further throughout the notebook. And as she's doing that, she finds a page where Gretchen has practiced Father Morgan's signature. So Gretchen sent the love letters. She also finds illustrations planning out the poisoning of Margaret with the tapeworm eggs. Yeah. So that night, Abby gets, Abby is asleep and the phone rings and it is real Gretchen, again, super weak. And she's saying like, she's on her way. She's coming. She's coming. You need to run and hide. And Abby's like, who's coming? Like, who the fuck do you think 
Abby. Possessed Gretchen kicks open Abby's bedroom door, beats the shit out of her, and takes the date book back. It is after this that Abby decides that she's going to contact an exorcist. How did she meet this exorcist? Well, uh, there was a presentation at school. On exorcism. Not on exorcism. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) On Jesus. Oh, that's worse. They're at a Catholic school. So at least understandable, but still worse. What's interesting is it's a bunch of brothers and they're all bodybuilders. (laughs) (laughs) And they're talking, they're like doing squats while talking about Jesus giving them strength. (laughs) <laughs> but not literal strength, like spiritual strength. Oh my god. It was weird. And frankly, it was a little homoerotic. Even though they're brothers. It. I mean, they were just getting ready for the second coming. God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, about this exorcist. <laughs> about the exorcist. Um, at one point during the presentation... The youngest one had, like, singled out Gretchen and been like, I can see the devil in you. So Abby's like, clearly this guy is an exorcist. And I won't go into the full detail of the exorcism because it's the climax of the book. And I feel like if you read it, you won't want me to, like, rattle off everything that happens. It's it's an exorcism. Long story short, what finally drives... The devil out of Gretchen is the power of friendship because Abby does kind of like an ad-libbed exorcism laden with 80s references that went over my head. Fair enough. And then everyone lives happily ever after. And that's my best friend's exorcism. Okay. No, it sounds good. I am curious now about some of the 80s references. If, I mean, I don't know that I would even get them all, but... I mean, it's pretty heavy-handed. I will say, when I read... Ready Player One, that's tons of 80s references, which is why a lot of people don't like that book. And I got those. And I enjoyed it because of it. I mean, the first chapter is 1982. Ronald Reagan was launching the war on drugs. Nancy Reagan was telling everyone to just say no. Epcot Center was finally open. Midway released Miss Pac-Man in arcades. And Abby Rivers was a certified grown-up because she'd finally cried at a movie. It was E.T., the extraterrestrial. I mean, that's all stuff everybody should kind of get, right? Yes. Obviously, I got that. But it's like that level of 80s references throughout. The amount of them. Yeah, for yes. sure. So I would give it four out of five VHS store stickers. I liked it a lot. I thought it was fantastic, honestly. I just feel like if I had gotten the 80s references, it would have been that much better. And that would have made it a five out of five for me, but I didn't get them. So I was kind of, there were entire passages that I was just kind of like, okay. But I get what he was going for. And I think the average person, even the average person my age, has far more of an interest in the 80s and would get more of the references. I just have next to zero interest in the 80s. And so I didn't get really any of them no that's fair enough so i think if people are into that 80s and i can tell just by the cover it it, it really is that sort of like 80s sort of 
glam phase. I mean, she's mm-hmm. got the huge hair and and all that. So if you're into that, you'll probably love it. Yeah. And even if you're not, it's still like campy, well-written, kind of absurd horror. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I still gave it four out of five. And that was without getting really any of the references. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty good. So I guess at this point, I should ask you if you would die if you were in the book. Um, Probably not, because honestly, there's not a lot of death. Oh, yeah. Now that I think about it, there's a lot of punishment. There's a lot of like torture, but there's not really any death. Yeah, that's fair. Or at least not any direct death. Like, death is talked about in reference to characters that you don't really meet or like things like that. Yeah. Would you die in the monkey's paw? Man, I don't know. I feel like in the monkey's paw, they just killed random people for any reason. So maybe. Probably. I probably would be. Because, truthfully, it seems like every character that they gave a name to is killed. Except for the main character. Catfish. Catfish. And then the two ex-girlfriends in it. And then, of course, the kid. But... A lot of times horror movies don't kill kids that easily. So I guess so. It just seemed, the death seemed so random. Yeah. So I, I might die. But I think it might be interesting. The more interesting question, I think, is would I use the monkey's paw for wishes? And that I'm not super sure of. Because part of me wants to think that I would just try to devise a way to like foolproof my wishes. And wish for things that couldn't backfire, even though the whole point is that every wish backfires. Hmm. That's what I thought about. When I was watching that, that's all I could think about is would I be wishing on this monkey's paw? Every wish is like a 10-page contract that you're reading out loud (laughs) while you hold this paw. Yeah, basically. But, yeah, I don't know. I probably would end up getting killed in the monkey's paw just because who, who didn't get killed in that movie that wasn't relevant to the ending anyways that's about it for the monkey's paw and my best friend's exorcism episode three episode three thank you for listening if you want you can find us on social media yes so you can find us at second to die pod on instagram second to die pod on twitter and also though i'm not really sure exactly how much i can post there if you just want to see a list of the books that I have read with my re- ratings for them for this podcast, you can also find us on Second to Die Pod on Goodreads. And if you have any comments, suggestions, uh, critiques, nice critiques, <laughs> or just whatever and want to get in contact with us via email, you can write us at secondtodiepod at gmail.com and For sure, recommendations of any other things that you'd want to hear us talk about, movies you want me to watch, or books you want Cole to read and then discuss, we would love to hear from you. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die. Mm